Hello, and welcome to the third series of Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broader reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Academic Associate at the Sainsbury Institute, Daiwa Scholar, and Archaeology PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge researching language and interpretation at Japanese war heritage sites. Today we're joined by Randy Sasaki, researcher at the Kyushu National Museum to discuss his specialism of underwater archaeology, otherwise known as maritime or nautical archaeology. Randy and I explore the window shipwrecks provide into international trade spanning hundreds and even thousands of years, as well as the benefits and challenges of sea-based archaeological surveys. Randy also shares with us details of his project in Tango, off the northern coast of Kyoto. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good evening, Randy. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm uh, glad to be here. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Okay. Well, my area of interest is maritime archaeology, or sometimes we call underwater archaeology. And... Basically, I have been studying about shipwreck and other uh, underwater cultural heritage sites, uh, mainly in Asia and in Japan. Actually, I was born in Japan, and my mother is from actually U.S. But anyway, I grew up in Japan, and I went to a college in United States. And well, I got interested in like a maritime uh, network and how you know, people in different continent and different uh, places interact. So that's my first interest. And from there, I got really interested in shipbuilding technology and how people used a ship to carry large volumes of items over long distance trade. So I decided to go to Texas A&M uh, University, which is considered one of the best program that provides underwater and nautical archaeology. So I wasn't really interested that much in Asian underwater archaeology and in Japan. Uh, however, I realized there really wasn't uh, much studies going on in Japan in this uh, field. And it's really strange because Japan is an island nation. So I thought, well, there must be something that I can do. So that's uh, how I became interested in uh, underwater archaeology in Japan. Since then, I have conducted several research in Japan, and now I am actually back in Japan. I returned here maybe 10 years ago, and basically trying to promote the study of this uh, underwater archaeology, underwater cultural heritage in Japan. Great. So before we get into your research, could you place underwater archaeology into the broader field of archaeology for us? I imagine it requires a whole different skill set and approach from conventional dig sites and excavations. Could you give us some examples of famous underwater archaeological sites? Okay, sure. Uh, well, uh, put things in larger uh, context. Well, the Earth is 70% ocean. So, uh, you know, if we don't study uh, ocean, then what are we studying uh, <laughs> when we talk about the uh, you know, this Earth? So, well, basically our area of studies covers 70% of the earth and plus more because if you considered you know, trade routes and all the uh, goods and other things that's been carried 
if you think about trade, then almost、uh, every trade goods are carried on ocean and、um, other waterways. So basically, my interest is how people interacted with this larger ocean and、uh, sphere of、uh, water. So、uh, that's underwater archaeology. And we call it underwater archaeology, but basically, my interest is maritime archaeology how people used ocean and our history, our relationship with ocean. So,、uh, history of human ocean interaction is what I am studying.、Uh, so, the famous site. Well, Probably the most famous underwater archaeological site in Japan is Takashima underwater site, which is in Nagasaki prefecture. This is the Mongol invasion site. In the 13th century, the Mongols tried to invade uh, Japan. Uh, of course, they、uh, actually used ships to invade Japan. And there was a great typhoon that happened to be、uh, at the same time when the Mongols were approaching Japan. And the legend has it that. Uh, more than you know, 3,000 or 4,000 ships were crushed、uh, during this、uh, huge、uh, typhoon. So,、uh, people in Japan called it Kamikaze or、uh, Divine Wind. So, that's probably the most famous shipwreck site in Japan. But if you、uh, think about you know, other countries, there's the 17th century Vasa shipwreck in Sweden, or in England, probably a lot of people know about the Mary Rose, which is the Henry VIII flagship. At the time. Yeah, and I guess a more modern example might be the wreck of the Titanic. Oh, of, of course, yeah, but that's、uh, too famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, could you tell us about what kind of skills you need to learn to practice underwater archaeology specifically? Okay, so、uh, I think a lot of people think that we all have to be a good diver, but that's actually not a requirement. Actually, good to have that skills. But basically, as I said, it is, you know, archaeology is study of you know, artifacts and other things, and then how it is related to us and how past culture relates to us, basically. So, the greatest skill is understanding the ocean and how people use that sphere, such as you know, how people use ships, but ships tend to be. Uh, lost at the sea, so we have to、uh, excavate it. But the basic principle is pretty much, I should say, 90 or 95% the same. We just have to you know, adapt to a different environment, and that's what any archaeologist、uh, must do if you are interested in what you,、uh, your subject、uh, area. So I found that the public popularity of archaeology comes from the tangible, visible work and findings it produces. Impressive excavations such as Stonehenge and mesmerizing artifacts from bygone ages come to mind. Is there a lack of this kind of visibility and awareness around underwater archaeology?、Hmm, okay, that's a good question. Actually,、uh, I think underwater archaeology is very、uh, visible. And if you think about a shipwreck, it's, it's a great site, it's the time capsule of the past. Pretty much,、uh, if you look at the shipwreck, everything that was on board is pretty much there underwater. So you can see what happened, who was on board, what was being carried. So we call it the time capsule of the past. 
So this is a very visible archaeology compared to some of the landsites which uh, tend to accumulate you know, uh, hundreds of uh, years. Shipwreck archaeology especially represents the moment in the past. So it's very visible, but you know, I should say those are the really uh, exceptional site. And in reality, most of the uh, underwater archaeological site is just just a site where uh, the sherd are just being scattered all over the place. Or oh, some artifacts lying here and here and five meters apart, there's another artifact and just scattered uh, all over the place because of uh, the action of waves, uh, fishermen uh, overturning the site and other uh, reason. So a lot of people have an image of shipwreck site is very visible and has this you know, sunken vessel just sitting uh, right there at the uh, sea bottom. But that's not the case. Uh, like Vasa and Mary Rose are exception in the ex exception. So when I talk about underwater archaeology, people think about those uh, great sites. But what I can tell people is just scattered of broken pottery shirt here and there. So there's a gap between what we study and what people think shipwreck archaeology is. I see. So given that most underwater archaeology sites and aren't perfectly preserved ships, as you just said, how do you locate these sites? Do you roughly work out from records uh, ships sank here? so long ago and let's send down a submarine and see what we can find or okay uh the great source is actually uh fishermen's uh, information because fishermen has been basically going to the ocean and looking at the at the sea for uh, many years so they know where something are sometimes they have uh like a fish detector and other things so they know uh, what is under the waves and also, you know, the historical sources, you know, written documents are a great source as well. So looking at both sources, uh, written information and fisherman information, also uh, just walking along the shore, you can sometimes pick up some porcelain, pieces of porcelain or other uh, artifacts. So combining all those evidence, we can kind of guess where things may be. And if once uh, we get that idea, then we use uh, like a side scan sonar or multi-beam. Basically, there are different uh, types of uh, technology that we can use, such as uh, a magnetometer uh, or a metal detector and uh, other things that can be used underwater. And we gather those information and try and locate a shipwreck uh, site. I see. So what can underwater archaeology reveal that land-based archaeology can't? And what is being done by heritage institutions to better inform the public about this? Okay, I think the best way to explain that is looking at trade. If you imagine the trade is like a one big tree, so the tree basically gathered all the nutrition at the root. So this is where things are being uh, produced in archaeological sense. And it comes at one point at the port, and then they're being transported to the other side. And then from there, the products go spread all over the place. So the land site is actually like a roots and also the leaves and other small parts of the tree. And shipwrecks is the uh, trunk uh, of the tree. 
So if you can look at the trunk of the tree, then you can know uh, what was being uh, carried. Uh, most of the land sites are uh, basically production site or uh, sites that something was used and discarded. But shipwreck site can provide what, what was being transported just in a motion. So it's preserved the moment, the people in action uh, when something was being uh, moved around and being uh, transported. See. And so uh, what are heritage institutions doing today to better highlight this uh, unique property of underwater archaeology? So internationally, there's uh, UNESCO is working towards protecting the underwater cultural heritage sites. They have a different work that they are doing. And also, basically, a lot of places in the world are protecting these underwater heritage sites, just as you know, land site. Uh, when something is being built over uh, water, such as uh, offshore wind farm and you know, uh, pipeline cables, they, they do conduct some surveys using uh, sonar and other technology to find a site. And when they find a site, then uh, try to preserve the site uh, in situ uh, after briefly recording what is uh, there. In Japan, actually, not much has been uh, done in this term, actually, uh, unfortunately. But uh, Japanese uh, Agency of Cultural Affairs uh, is trying to uh, promote this study of underwater uh, archaeology. And last uh, March, they actually published a guideline for how to find uh, these underwater archaeological sites and what's the process uh, involved in actually protecting these sites below the waves. I see. I have a quick question about um, these underwater archaeology sites as opposed to land-based archaeology sites. So uh, when I think of like the challenges to land-based archaeology, usually it's that land is uh, used and reused and reused again, and that can make it difficult to work out where certain artifacts are meant to be or place where they were, they were discovered, what, what that says about the artifacts. Um, many of the items we have in museums tend to be dug up in fields, which are totally unrelated to uh, the origin of the artifact, for example. And we think about the city of London, which uh, has been around for hundreds of years, and things are built on top of other things, and eventually things get lost in the process. But because there's so much, <laughs> as you say, 70% of the world is covered in water, and uh, these ships tend to be found where they were, where they sank hundreds of years ago, would you say that, that underwater archaeology sites are better preserved than land-based ones? Uh, yes and no. It depends. Uh, underwater sites tend to be uh, better preserved if it is covered by sand or mud. Uh, one study suggests that if the site is covered for more than 50 centimeters of sediment, then pretty much everything is well-preserved. Organic material, like uh, people's sandals and uh, pieces of uh, silk fragments and other organic material well-preserved because oxygen doesn't uh, get into the site. So bacteria doesn't eat up these uh, wood and other organic materials. So uh, sometimes you can see the perfectly preserved ship, such as a Vasa at the uh, stock home. But on the other hand, 
uh, if the site is not covered by sand, then there's a lot of uh, different marine organisms that comes and eat up all the wood and organic material. And also the action of waves uh, churn up the site. A fisherman might come up and basically destroy the site. Also treasure hunter has been a problem in the past. So these sites are somewhat in a danger if it's uh, exposed above the seabed. I see. Fascinating. So I'd like to ask a bit more about your Tango projects, getting high school students in Japan directly involved in underwater archaeology projects. How did it come about and what are the goals of your project? Okay, so maybe I should uh, explain more about the project in uh, Tango, Japan. So Tango area is actually a north of Kyoto area. And a lot of people, even in Japan, uh, think that Kyoto Prefecture doesn't have uh, ocean, but actually the Kyoto Prefecture has ocean. And that is uh, basically Tango area. So, well, there was a high school student in Tango area, and she was looking for some a research project for her a high school summer project. And she came upon a book about underwater archaeology, which was written actually 40 years ago. And she was uh, impressed about the underwater archaeology and decided, okay, this will be my summer project. And since this book was published 40 years ago, she thought that, okay, no, it has been uh, 40 years. So there must be uh, more uh, research that has been going on since. But uh, she found out that not much has been going on. Uh, not much research has been conducted at uh, Tango area. So she really became concerned about why there's not much research going on in her uh, hometown area. So she called out using uh, SNS and asked for uh, help from experts who knows about underwater archaeology. And she said you know, she wants to find a site uh, near her hometown. So I happened to found her account, and then I contacted her and started talking about underwater archaeology. And somehow that just became bigger and bigger, and we decided to conduct research together. So that's how our project kind of came about, and we decided to conduct a crowdfunding project, which started last March and ended just last April. Basically, we use like an internet and stuff and asking people to donate. So we decided to do a crowdfunding uh, project. So crowdfunding uh, kind of getting uh, popular in Japan these days. So we asked uh, people, uh, mainly through uh, internet, and asked people to donate uh, money to the, the project. So we basically uh, started this project in March. And for two months, we asked people. Uh, did a lot of advertisement and online uh, event and other stuff. And we reached uh, actually 4 million yen. So now we have uh, 4 million yen, which is probably uh, just enough to conduct an uh, archaeological survey for about a week in Tango this summer. Great. And uh, what sites will you be looking at? Okay. Uh, yes. So... Basically, uh, she is interested in uh, Yayoi and Kofun uh, period sites. And there's uh, no Yayoi or Kofun periods uh, underwater uh, sites in Tango area. 
And if you uh, notice about uh, Yayoi and Kofunpir, this is the time where uh, Japan had uh, interaction with the continent, uh, mainly through uh, Korean Peninsula and some from uh, China, uh, China mainland as well. And usually, a lot of interaction is through uh, Hakata uh, area. But uh, a lot of people are saying that there must have been a lot of interaction through Tango uh, area as well. And there's a lot of different kofun uh, in Tango area that has uh, material coming from uh, the continent. And it is strange to see uh, so much concentration in Tango area. So there must have been a more and more interaction directly. And so not uh, from uh, Hakata, but actually from the continent directly to Tango area. And we would like to see uh, evidence of those uh, direct uh, interaction with Tango area and the continent, if, if possible. Amazing. So what kind of trade was going on at that, at that time? What, what artifacts do you expect to find? Uh, there should be some pottery and other uh, stuff related to uh, Korean Peninsula. And also uh, like a bronze, and other uh, metal object must have come through there. And there must be uh, some other uh, site closer to a shore that might have that characteristic. And actually there are uh, several sites uh, right along the coastline that has those uh, characteristics. And maybe if we go beyond a little bit over and look into the seabed just in front of those sites, we might be able to find some settlement or maybe some trading post or some harbor structure uh, at that time. So there's a lot of potential. And that's the main interest, but our focus is also a more broad. And as I was saying before, there has been no underwater sites uh, discovered in a Tango area. So we want to discover uh, pretty much anything, any uh, underwater uh, sites uh, in the area. And also, this is, uh, I think it is a great chance to promote the study of underwater archaeology and uh, tell people uh, how to conduct uh, underwater archaeological survey because uh, there has been no uh, survey uh, conducted in this area. So you know, it would be a great opportunity for cultural uh, heritage officer uh, to see the project directly going on uh, near their uh, uh, municipality that they are uh, involved in researching. Very exciting. So uh, I suppose a significant challenge to archaeology at sea is determining who has the rights to claim ownership of a site, uh, given their often international nature. And this relates to your comments about treasure hunters earlier. When recovering artifacts from underwater archaeological surveys, does the question of ownership become more problematic? Uh, yes, uh, especially for more recent uh, sites. Uh, ownership always could be a, a problem, especially uh, for foreign vessels. So if uh, we find, uh, let's say, a British uh, ship or U.S. ship or Russian ship in Japanese uh, water, we should uh, inform the country of origin. And there shouldn't be much problem if it's within the territorial water of uh, Japan. But if it's uh, beyond that point, like exclusive economic zone, and we really don't have, you know, law 
there, there's no uh, international agreement of how we should uh, deal with underwater uh, archaeological site. UNESCO is trying to you know, promote uh, this and give some uh, guideline, but 70 countries has uh, ratified the convention, but uh, Japan has not ratified the convention. So uh, there's a lot of uh, confusion and probably have to look at case by case what will happen when we discover foreign ships. I see. So until that's ratified, is it a matter of salvage law? Uh, not uh, really. I think uh, Japanese uh, government really has no concern because there hasn't been a much underwater archaeological sites discovered in Japan. So they don't feel the need to actually uh, ratify the uh, convention uh, yet. Uh, some people uh, in the government uh, like uh, the Agency for Cultural Affairs are uh, really uh, looking into how to uh, ratify the convention, but you know, that's a higher uh, up the level of the government. And government really are not concerned yet about the un protecting underwater cultural heritage. They, they just don't see that the site uh, is there. I see. Well, thank you for answering all of my questions, Randy. It's been a fascinating episode. Uh, before we finish up, could you share with us what other projects are currently working on? Uh, okay. Uh, well, other project, uh, I'm working on some inland sites. <laughs> uh, there's some I was uh, <laughs> talking about shipwrecks all the time, but now I start talking about uh, underwater archaeological sites uh, in lakes. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, currently I am becoming more and more interested in disaster sites. Japan is volcanic uh, island, so there's a lot of earthquake and eruption. And these actually change the course of the river and sometimes there's a new lake emerges because the new dam is created naturally. And when that happens, some sites are become uh, submerged. So inland sites uh, has to be more uh, studied carefully. So I am uh, trying to uh, conduct a survey in different inland uh, lake areas. So that's one project that I, I'm doing in uh, Lake uh, Hibara in Fukushima Prefecture. And this is actually a more recent site. There was a volcanic eruption in 1888. So basically it's a Meiji period. And through this, a village was completely submerged uh, underwater. So we know the location of the village and there are some you know, artifacts and features are found underwater, but no uh, real scientific uh, excavation uh, has been taking place at this uh, site in Fukushima uh, prefecture. So uh, me and several uh, other uh, researchers are uh, conducting a research, basically a survey uh, using side scan sonar and actually a diving uh, at the site to see what remains of the village uh, we can find. Great. Wow, sounds fascinating. Look forward to hearing more about that. Thank you for joining me again, Randy. It's been a real pleasure. Okay, it's my last pleasure too. You can find a link to Randy's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. 
You can also get in touch to recommend topics for the podcast at o.moxon at sainsbury-institute.org. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Chie Kutsuada, UK-based manga artist, to discuss Japanese comics as art and the global spread of the genre's art style and readership. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.